Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show. My name's Amelia and today we have an almost doctor on the show. We've got Charlotte, who is a shark researcher, who is currently and almost finished doing her PhD. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Hi, Amelia. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure already. I'm going to start with hopefully an easy-ish question. What is your job? My job is I'm a shark researcher. So I look at sharks and at the moment my project looks at oceanic sharks or the ones that you don't see as much, the ones that are in the middle of the ocean. Species like blue sharks, oceanic white tips, dusky sharks, sort of ones like that. You've literally just listed a whole lot of sharks I've never heard of before. I know, that's why it's pretty exciting to look at them. When most people think of sharks, and correct me if I'm wrong, they tend to think of, you know, the big four white sharks, bull sharks, and I'm actually not looking at those species. I'm looking at the other, other sharks. Yeah, because I could list a couple of sharks that like hang out on the bottom of the sea floor and obviously the ones that you need to be concerned about when you're surfing, but who who are these mystery sharks? <laughs> actually, that's what we're looking at. My project is actually dealing with where they are and why they're there. So this is the level of information that we are still acquiring at the moment. So I look all around Australia and Australian waters, and then I look at where these sharks are, then I look at the environment where they were found, things like water temperature, water depth, how clear the water was, and then I develop models to predict other places that we're likely to find them, other hotspots, if you will. That sounds like really basic kind of information to be gathering. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? When, When you read the media reports, you watch, you know, the wonderful movies that we have out, you think, oh, we must know everything about sharks. But once you start to look more in depth, there's still a lot that we can learn. For reference, about how big are these sharks? It depends on the species. Um, As I'm sure you know, do you know what the biggest shark is? I don't mean to put you on the spot. The biggest shark... (laughs) No, no, no. I want to answer. I'm fairly sure it's the, oh, no, I want to say the whale shark and you're going to tell me that's a fish. Yes. But a shark is a fish. Well, fish are, sharks are fish. Fantastic. But not all fish are sharks. So, yeah, the biggest shark is the whale shark. And I don't look at whale sharks, so we do have them over here in Western Australia where I'm based. So the sizes, yeah, it depends on the species. But the ones you're researching? It depends on the species. I would say from two metres up. Okay, the, the reason I'm asking is I'm sort of trying to build a picture in my head of how much of you has a risk of being nibbled by these sharks. <laughs> how much of me? Well, it's also like, yeah, yeah. So the sizes of sharks is definitely depend on the species, but the ones that do tend to be in the open ocean, do they tend to be bigger sharks because they have to swim fast. Have you heard of the mako shark, which is the fastest shark, the Ferrari of the ocean as it was? Yes, So they tend to be a bit bigger because basically they need bigger tails as well to propel them so that they can catch their prey because nothing's really loitering around out there. And you're very unlikely to see these as well, which I think is quite unfortunate. Like the blue shark is actually blue if you look at it from above. And they're these beautiful animals if you can even look on the internet and see them. If you can look past the teeth, there's a lot to be loved about sharks. Well, one of the things that I've heard about sharks is that they're incredibly curious creatures. Yes, they can be. 
if you think about it, if you're scuba diving, you've got this big metal thing on your back and then you've got all these contraptions, you're breathing in and out, which makes a sound like you've got bubbles going up, you've got flippers. We're, you know, we're not exactly these stealthy animals moving through their environment, especially if some of these sharks haven't seen a person before. They're probably a bit curious as to exactly what we are doing there because we're quite big creatures as well, relatively. So what have you found out in your research so far? Well, I've published two of my thesis chapters so far, and they're freely available with open access. And I've found that these oceanic sharks, that we can predict areas around Australia where they are by looking at water temperature. We get the water temperature from satellites a long way offshore. And by measuring this, we can get the water temperature and then we combine this with, say, clear water, because these sharks do like to be away from the beaches where the water's clearer. And so we can use this and then we can predict other areas where we find them. And I've also looked at how climate change will impact them because some of these species like the oceanic white tip is actually critically endangered already. The two mako species I look at is endangered, the dusky sharks are endangered. So it's vital that we look at these where they are now and also try to figure out where they'll be in the future. Is it likely that their ranges will be expanding or shrinking with changing temperatures? A little bit of both. Again, it depends on the species. There's likely to be moving further south which, as I said, I look at Australian waters, which as you go further south, there's really not a lot until you hit Antarctica. So it'll be something that we'll need to look more in depth in in the future and keep tracking them to see exactly how they're moving. Speaking of tracking, are you using like locators on the sharks to keep an eye on where they're going? I have tagged sharks. For this work, I'm not because it's such a large area. I'm actually using data where they're caught by fishes by fishermen so we see where they catch them and then I can get the data but I've also done some tagging of sharks we do satellite tags which goes in the fin and then when they break the surface we it broadcasts the locations we can see where they are and also acoustic tags which is when they go past an array of receivers sort of like wi-fi we put a fitbit or an apple watch on them and when they go past the wi-fi it pings and then we can say that this shark of this size, of this gender, was caught at this time, was passing through this area then. So it does give us a lot of information when you put it all together again with the water temperature and the environment around them. So we're getting a much better picture of what's going on. You mentioned that a bunch of them are endangered or threatened. What sort of factors are resulting in that rating? There's a number of factors at play about how what impacts sharks. And one of them is loss of habitat. One of them is fishing practices, Um, finning is another big one. And yeah, sort of, again, we need to know a lot more about what's going on. But you can help protect sharks by just, if you eat seafood, by buying sustainable seafood and looking how this seafood is caught and where it's caught and how it's processed. And a lot of these things all together, if you've heard the saying, you can vote with your wallet. So if you do that, And also plastics, obviously reduce, reuse, recycle, all of this together. Even if you just do it in your own house and in your own kitchen, it can help our oceans and help our sharks as well. We don't often think about sharks being impacted by plastics, I don't think. No, no. Actually, I find out more and more a lot about these sharks people don't really think about. And that's why I think it's important to do podcasts and to do the science communication that you do, because it helps us get the message out there. Because as I said, there's so much that we can learn. Well, and there's so much we don't know. And honestly, that's a little bit embarrassing. It's like, I feel like we should know these things about the basic animals that are around us. 
I know. We're working on it. <laughs> one step at a time. I know, but it... Well, one one flip up in at a time. <laughs> but it's 2020 already and even some of these sharks, we don't know where they are or where they're going. <laughs> I know. It's almost 2021 yeah, as well. Don't say that. And, yeah, there's a few studies going on globally about exactly that, looking at a recent study came out talking about reef sharks and using underwater cameras to look on reefs to see where they are. And, again, looking at the bigger sharks, looking at whale sharks off Ningaloo Reef here off Western Australia and off, off um, Africa. So we are building, we're putting pieces of the puzzle together and building it so we can eventually have a much greater idea of what's going on. Which is good. It, it takes time, but it's so valuable, super valuable. It is, it is. It takes money too, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and anything involving the ocean becomes infinitely more expensive and risky. Mm-hmm. The ocean doesn't seem to like technology. <laughs> Things rust, batteries don't quite last. Yeah. Yeah. But I love it. I'm very, very lucky to be doing this. A lot of duct tape and problem solving. <laughs> <laughs> we might need to come back to that. I feel like that fits under the category of skills. What does an average day at work, not that there is such a thing at sea or probably even with a shark, but what what sort of things might you cover in average days at work? Well, it depends. If you're doing the really fun stuff like the field work, well, first off, you've got to get ready for the field work. So that's doing the, the paperwork, getting all your equipment, shipping it if you're going somewhere very exotic. And then if you're in the field in the morning, if you're doing underwater cameras, it's getting the cameras ready, getting them charged, getting the bait ready, getting your tags ready, getting the boat ready. And then you go out and do the field work. You've got to catch the animals, depending if you're taking genetic samples, everything's got to be prepared and labeling. I always underestimated the amount of time you spend labeling vials three times in each one. And then when you come back, you get all this data, you organize it, you do the data entry into Excel spreadsheets, and then you do the analysis depending on your question. If you're looking at the spatial area, you could be using GIS, sort of those computer programs, or you could use the statistic programs, and then you write up all of your reports. So at the moment, I'm at the end of my PhD, so my time is more spreadsheets and staples and paper clips than actual seeing sharks, I'm afraid. But no, it all depends. It all comes together and you have another piece of this puzzle that you can put together. It's a very long journey and you're definitely at the, yeah, I guess the more process end of the journey. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm hoping you had some fun field work in the middle there. Oh, absolutely. I was fortunate enough to spend four months at sea. So both off the west coast of Western Australia here up in Ningaloo Reef. And also in a place called the Chagos Archipelago, which is literally in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And I have to admit, the Indian Ocean is my favourite. It's one of the least explored oceans as well. So all of you budding marine biologists, you can get yourself a project and discover something. Everyone does kind of focus on the Great Barrier Reef. Yes. And it is amazing. There's so much to see there. And also off, yeah, here in Western Australia, there's the other big reef as well, Ningaloo, but there's also the temperate reef, the Great Southern Reef, which goes along southern Australia. And that's also fascinating with all the kelp. And then we've got seagrass as well. So there's a lot of different ecosystems that all play a very important part in the ocean. And then you've also got oceanography. You can study the currents. We put gliders out there. Yeah, there's it's amazing what goes on. With your time spent at sea, was that at sea 
the whole time or were you going out on small boats from land during the day? It was a bit of both. Off Western Australia, sort of more inshore, looking at the sharks and filming them here, that was, and doing some sampling as well of fish, that was sort of from a research vessel, but we were relatively close into shore. But the work in the Chagos or the British Indian Ocean Territory, that was basically, I think the longest I spent was six and a half weeks at sea, which is a long time. Fortunately, I like boats and touch wood don't tend to get seasick. So it's if, yeah, if you like boat, and I got to go diving and everything, it was absolutely incredible. I loved every minute of it. But that was definitely not within sight of land by any means. That is a long time to be at sea. It is. So you get definitely get your sea legs. Yes. <laughs> what are some of the skills that you need to be able to do your job? Like obviously not getting seasick is is beneficial, but what, what, <laughs> That's a bonus. what else is there? <laughs> well, I've been asked quite a few times, do you have to scuba dive? And not necessarily. I also am part of the teaching team actually just last week. I was teaching sort of marine biology here. And we had some students that weren't doing the snorkeling and that's fine. We also need people to, as I said, to do the data crunching or to do the sampling and things like that. So you don't necessarily have to be a scuba diver, but that it does, you know, can help if you want to go into that sort of thing as well. Also data analysis with ecology, which is what I do, ecology, marine biology, there's a lot of data. You have to see if these two populations, for example, are different. And to do that, you have to have a baseline and you have to have a statistical number to say yes or no, whether they're different. And also I do a lot of mapping, as I said, in ArcGIS, which is a lot of programming, things like R statistical language and Python is very helpful. I definitely recommend coding. It will definitely get you a step ahead. And also being able to write. We do a lot of report writing, a lot of proposal writing. To get funding, you write grants. So that's also something else that's very useful. But also I think other things is you have to it's enough almost just to have a deep interest. If you are interested in something and you have that part of you that wants to answer a question, whether it's the ocean or whether it's trees or whether it's what monkeys eat, that can actually, that passion can fuel you a long way as well. I love that idea that that interest can power so much and that it can take you so far because even if Maybe you'd struggle to sit down and just teach yourself R, which personally I have never won a battle with R. But oh, everyone struggles with R. <laughs> but if you're driven enough to find that answer and R is the solution to to finding that answer, then you're going to eventually beat it so that you can get that answer. Absolutely. And for me personally, I have to say that's what fuels me. It's not the numbers as much as the question that the numbers are helping me answer and getting a tangible result that then you can then broadcast and say, yes, this is what's happening. And no, this is not what's happening. So, but there's, you know, there's a lot of help out there as well. There's whole websites. Um, I saw something on Twitter yesterday. It's, it might not come across in the audio medium, but it has a lady and I wish I could think of her handle. It's very clever. And she's typing away and it says, this is what people think I do based on coding in the movies. It's like you spent five minute coding done. 
But what it actually is, is you look at that backspace error, Google this, okay, I'll try that, that didn't work. And then at the end of two days, you're like, okay, I've got it done. And that actual piece of code will probably only be a paragraph. It is a, not as quick as we would like, but it does, number one, it does get easier. And number two, you learn different things. There's new packages that come out, new ways of doing things all the time. And there is a lot of help out there. Other people will help you as well. And especially with something like coding, there is a huge ecosystem of support that surrounds it. And like something like Python is just so popular. Like there's a lot out there. It is. And I find once you get past the intimidation, well, for me anyway, if you had told me I was doing a project about sharks, I would have gone, yes, I can see that. But a project about statistical modeling, I would have been, no, 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 I am not your girl. But again, it's, it's, yeah, if you have enough dedication and you want to learn it and the skills that you get, they're also very transferable. You can use them in other, in other things and other avenues. And yeah, I'd strongly recommend coding. That's what I would tell my high school self. <laughs> get some coding. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I will definitely be using that as part of the advert for this uh, particular episode because not enough people just magically say it. <laughs> no. And actually um, cut this out if you want to. But there is a great program that I have actually just done a one day of called She Codes. And I know they're here in Western Australia. I'm pretty sure they're Australia wide. And they actually do that. They help women and girls learn how to code. It's a very supportive environment. I did it in COVID where I basically sat at my table and they had Zoom and we all chatted and they basically help you through. They help you learn HTML, I think it's Python, how to set up websites, CC, CSS. And also without sounding too geeky, I have started to dabble in website design just because it's, you know, almost that gateway. Once you get through coding, not being that terrifying thing that you thought it was, once you break it down, it's like, oh, well, if I could do that, maybe I could do this. And I dabble in Python and I dabble in HTML and it definitely gets easier. You've just got to get through that first huge learning curve where nothing works and then gradually it falls into place. And if you keep heading down that path, you'll end up with your own podcast website, which generates its own RSS feed, et cetera, et cetera, which is how I've ended up here. (laughs) Ah, well, there you go. Personally, I find front end a lot easier or like web development easier just because you can actually see what you're doing and you get an immediate like visual result from something like CSS. I am by no means a guru. I hope it didn't come across like that. (laughs) I dabble and I do actually enjoy it. Again, I would never have thought I would say this when I even do a bit of Linux, however you say it, Linux, things like that. Admittedly, it was born of necessity. <laughs> Are you, have you gone proper deep geek and uh, writing your PhD in, is it LaTeX or LaTeX? LaTeX? Um, no, good old fashioned words, a lot easier for that. And I'm not sure, I probably don't want the extra stress at this point. <laughs> One less thing to worry about. How have you ended up in this job where you're researching sharks, you're using statistics, you're using a bit of code, you're making maps, like you're doing a whole lot of really cool things. How have you got to where you are now? How have I got to where I am now? My career path is probably a little bit different. I went through to year 12 and did know that I wanted to be a marine biologist. I started off liking whales and dolphins and turtles, but then I found sharks and never looked back. (laughs) And so I did chemistry, biology, I 
think I did some computer programming in, in high school. And then I got into a double degree back in Queensland, which was a Bachelor of Science in Ecology and a Bachelor of Arts in Mandarin Chinese. So I did a double degree in four years. And so that got me my science side of things and also the art side of things, which is sort of the other side, which is quite useful. And as part of that, we had an exchange of at least one year in China. So I was lucky enough to live there, develop my Chinese language, um, do some marine studies as well. And then I was there for a couple of years and came back and did an honours degree. And an honours is a one-year research project that you do after your undergraduate. And I did that, again, on sharks, <laughs> on sharks and rays, about 30-odd species, about the biomechanics of their spinal columns. You may or may not be aware that sharks don't have bones per se as we do and like other bony fish, but they have cartilage like what's in your nose and is in your ears. And so I looked at how that varies. The structure of this vertebral column varies between species and that's what I was looking at, how and why. And then I moved on from that and I did a little bit of consulting as a marine ecologist and then I started my PhD and here I am now and I moved over to Perth for that. So along the way, it was very, a blessing and a curse, I guess you'd say, that I always knew what I wanted to do, which is good, but I never really considered other things at the same time. So I, I knew this is what I wanted to do and I, I did work to get there. But I did take, you know, a little time in China to learn Mandarin and use that a little bit and then a little bit of time in consulting, which helps solidify report writing working under time constraints, working as part of a team. And all of this actually, I'd say that a lot of the skills that you have will help you with a PhD. And then also the skills that you learn from academia, if you choose that path, can also help you to transfer back. It doesn't necessarily, I don't agree that it has to necessarily be one avenue, that you can go a lot of different directions and use the skills to help you get there. Definitely. I am going to, I am quite curious, what, inspired you to choose Mandarin? <laughs> Mandarin, we had it in high school actually. We had a, a Chinese teacher came over and taught the class and it was actually a deal I had with my dad because I remember in year seven being asked what do you want to do and I said I want to be a marine biologist and so did the rest of the class. <laughs> the teacher's like oh yes of course you are. <laughs> And I think it was a bit of the same with my parents. And I actually had a deal with my dad that, you know, marine biology was great if I wanted to do it, but the career prospects are very competitive. It's quite hard to get into. So I had to have a backup and my backup was Mandarin as a second language, as you know, China is a, a great country, a very large country. So that would have a lot of prospects in the future. So that's how I ended up in my double degree which was unusual at the time, actually doing arts and science. I don't know if it still is. I hope not. I hope it's becoming more common. I, l I love that as a bargaining sort of like agreement. Yes, yes, you know. Yeah, go and study your sharks, but make sure you've got a solid backup. So I do hope to use the both of them together. I'd like to um, do some work in China and do some science communication. I'm, I'm trying to use it a bit in my science communication, the Mandarin. So we'll see where that goes. I think there's a huge amount of potential there. Yeah, hopefully. I do really enjoy it. And it's great to get the viewpoints of other cultures as well. And the Chinese language is so rich that their characters, how they write their words has meaning. 
And if you look at the meaning, it sort of helps you understand the culture a little bit more as well. Are we allowed to ask what you're thinking about doing next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after my PhD, I will have a rest <laughs> and maybe have a bit of a holiday. And then I'd like to do more research. I absolutely do love the research. I love my sharks and see what's around there, but also get more into the communicating science, communicating research, especially about our oceans and conservation. And also try to try to use the Mandarin as well to do a bit of, I don't know, see, see what doors I can open. Because 2020 certainly wasn't what we expected. <laughs> so who knows what 2021 will hold. It could literally hold anything right at this moment. I know. I know. So we'll have to, I'll keep you posted. I'll say that. I think we'll all be listening with with interest. Is there any particular kind of communication that you like prefer? Like do you prefer writing science or like doing talks at schools or? I, I do a, a fair bit of talks. Actually, just last week I was talking to a school in Ohio a bunch of actually very talented five to seven-year-olds and they kept me on my toes asking a lot of questions and I do really enjoy that and I do talk to the adults as well and I'd like to get more into perhaps a YouTube channel I'm thinking when I've got a bit more time to put into it and yeah I'm sort of I'm open to opportunities and open to suggestions. That's awesome. You, you never quite know what's going to come. I know. Was there a particularly good question from a young person? Yes, but I'm embarrassed to say I probably still don't know the answer. Would an x-ray work on sharks? Because they don't have bones and I'm possibly an MRI, but I can't see us really hanging an MRI off the side of a boat. Questions like that. I'm like, that is actually a really, a really good question. I'm going to be stuck thinking about that one for a while. I love it. I know, I know. And it's sort of, yeah, it's, that's why I love it because you get such totally different points of view. And I was actually at the museum and I was on a panel with some other people talking about sharks to the public, which I really enjoy. And it's just getting those different viewpoints as well from adults and students because we are taught as scientists to think in a certain way and to examine evidence. And it is the scientific method, but it also you do think the same way. So you need other people to help you think in different avenues and examine questions from a different point of view. And that's why I think it's so rich. And yeah, having the public help us with science is vitally important. I like that. And it it sort of, it also reflects the importance that diversity and not just like the standard ways we think about diversity, but also like science and non-science and that kind of diversity is really important as well, just for like approaching different thoughts and questions. Absolutely. And that's why I think citizen science projects are so important. And again, get us to think of things from a different way. I've, in in my field of work, have worked with some fishermen and they spend a lot more time on the water than I do. They're out there most days. They know the weather, they know the, the ocean. And so yeah, if you ask them questions, they've got a lot of knowledge that they're often very happy to share. And also with citizen science, if we can get the people that are on the water and the hobbyists, I mean, if you get 100 school kids that are all looking for a species, you're probably more likely to find it than if you just have two scientists out there, you know, every other day for a month. Was there a particular event or like key moments in your career that have been like 
really solidify that this is the right thing for you to be doing? I would have to say might be a bit of a downer, but when I started my PhD, for example, mako sharks, the long fin, the short, short fin mako, were not listed as endangered and now they are. The oceanic white tip is now critically endangered. So seeing things like that where the numbers are dropping so quickly makes gives me a more of a sense of purpose and makes me think like that this work really does need to be done. Was there like the first time you saw a shark? Oh, definitely. That's when I was snorkeling and fortunate enough to grow up near the reef back in Queensland. And I remember jumping in the water and you know, I saw this little reef shark and it got away from me as quick as it could, did not want to be anywhere near me. And that's when I got to thinking, so this is the animal that, you know, it's all over the newspaper and you see in Jaws and it definitely didn't want a bar of me. It couldn't get away from me quick enough. And that's what got me thinking. It's like, well, he's more scared of me than I am of him. And it just got me really curious. And also letting, once you start to scuba dive and you spend time, I love it because you can think of nothing for me anyway, you think of nothing but the bubbles, nothing but what you're looking at. It's so immersive. I also literally, <laughs> I do love a good dad joke. <laughs> and you, yeah, you just can relax and it's just incredible. And I think we just, as I've said, there's so much more that we can learn. And I just love, you know, unsolving these mysteries. And getting to find new things and see new things is, is pretty special. Absolutely, definitely. And I'm very lucky to have um, my supportive family members and through school, just having science teachers and other teachers that yeah, encouraged me to, to follow my dream, no matter how way out that would have been. Like I'm sure my parents would have much rather I you know, had a more desk-bound job that was a little bit safer, but there you go. <laughs> you can't have everything. <laughs> Is there... Like, what's your favourite bit about your job? My favourite bit about, I'd have to say, would be the field work. Would be going out there and every time I see a shark, even now, it takes my breath away. They're just incredible with what they do and just the way they move, They, the way they move through the water and it's just incredible. I just love it. Something about it just feeds the soul, I think. And being near the ocean, it's it's so calming for you. And I also do enjoy the outreach side of it as well, communicating what we've learned because as scientists, we've got, you know, all of this knowledge in, in peer-reviewed journal articles. And I think a lot of it needs the public's interest and they want to know. We just sort of, you know, have to discuss it with them. And again, getting their viewpoints very important as well. And I would like to think that a topic like sharks, like surely people that would pique people's interest. Yes, yes. Uh, I think the teeth tends to pique most people's interest, <laughs> I'm afraid. Yeah, but as I found, you know, most once you start talking, but, you know, for example, there's over 500 species of sharks. That alone, people are like, what, really? Followed by, can you name them all? It's like, probably not the next five minutes, no. <laughs> but no, every, every day is an adventure. Not going to lie, not so much the coding. Those days are less of an adventure. <laughs> More a coffee and chocolate day, but um, it's all part of getting the research done. And it's it's one thing to go out there and see all these beautiful things and be inspired and all that, but you, 
you also need to do the science bit behind it so that there's solid evidence and knowledge and so he can actually be like look this thing needs to change or something isn't as we thought it was and it's the numbers that end up doing that oh absolutely it's all about the numbers and also that's yeah you're exactly right that is what's important is you science is fluid it does change you know we find something and what we thought happened didn't happen because now we can We've got submersibles that can go deeper. We've got cameras that can film for longer. We've got tags that stay on an animal for a longer duration. And so it's like, okay, so then we refine our knowledge and then we build upon that. And it is all about, yeah, the statistics and the testing and being rigorous so that we can be as certain as we can be that this is what's actually happening. And so that when we do go to the public and talk to them about these things that we're talking from a place of knowledge. Absolutely. You've mentioned coding, but have you got any other advice for maybe for the young Charlotte sitting out there who's like, sharks are so cool? <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, mine, yeah, would be follow what you love, whether that's poetry or whether that's the ocean. But also, I think some of the best advice I've been given is don't forget to look sideways. If I was so focused on just doing sharks, I wouldn't have done my Mandarin. And that has, you know, been life-changing for me, living in China, seeing a different culture. So also follow your passion, but also experiment a little and find other things, whether it's you might have a great interest in um, geology, And if you really like the ocean, you could look at marine geology, things like that. It doesn't have to be because marine science is a very large field, just looking at that. It doesn't have to be all about the biology or the animals. It can be about, yeah, the sedimentation or the formation or oceanography. So there's a lot that you can look at. And also take advice from others. Learn from the mistakes and the triumphs of others that some things work and some things don't. And volunteer as much as you can. And if you're not near the ocean, volunteer in a lake or everything's available on the internet now. You can follow, I think it's Scripps Institute that are doing these dives and in live time you can follow them and see what they're seeing and you might see something that gets your interest, then you can Google that or if someone releases an article or something that you're interested in, don't be shy about contacting them. As scientists and researchers, we love people to ask us questions. And I guarantee you, if, if you want to read something, but you can't access it for whatever reason, if you email, there'll be an email address on it. If you email them and say, I'd love to chat to you about X, Y, Z, I'd say nine, nine and a half times out of 10, unless they're crazy busy they would be like great um happy to give you my what my article and happy to chat to you about it i think that's all yeah awesome advice because yeah i think we can as members of the public it's easier to look at scientists and be like oh they're they're like a special breed of people that like (laughs) we're not allowed to go near them don't disrupt the scientists like like they're in a zoo behind some glass That is what I am actually trying to break down. It's like scientists are just like you. We've just chosen to study these things, which is, it's different, but it's certainly no better than the other people that keep the world moving. 
we all shop at Coles. We all, you know, have to do this thing. But, yeah, I think we need to be more approachable. And certainly every university definitely would have an outreach centre or someone that would be in charge of their communications. I answer quite a few emails myself, actually, the last last month as I think the school semester is coming to an end and tape it's you get emails like can you tell me about I had one about whale sharks another one about I think career progression and yeah as long as I've got time happy to answer them and answer questions and have a chat so yeah reach out to your local scientists and if there's not a local scientist find someone on the internet because it doesn't have to be local by email no and there's a lot of them out there (laughs) there's a lot of us around we're certainly not endangered (laughs) and again that does not sorry that's not just biologists that also goes for whatever you're interested in botanists or physicists or just be careful because every scientist does like to talk about their work so make sure you can't ask if you've just got five minutes because you'll definitely go over time probably like this podcast Well, that, yeah, that is the risk. It, it's one thing to get the scientists to start talking. It's another to stop them. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> I, I also love that advice. Like we hear it all the time in, in sort of like Instagram, like cute stories or something like follow your passion and it'll all be okay. But I also really like that idea of looking sideways and picking up things along the way that aren't necessarily directly on the path, but will help you do more awesome things down the track. Like you as a science communicator, you'll be able to achieve something that so many other people won't be able to imagine because you've got that Mandarin. Yeah. And also it doesn't have to be a career. If you're interested in something, it could be a hobby. I mean, I'm teaching myself. I'm an absolutely terrible drawer and I've got an iPad and I'm starting to draw and do a bit of design because basically it's nothing to do with my work. It's a way to sort of switch off. And everybody needs that. And in some way, in some way, it'll all come together at some point or, yeah, it's not wasted energy. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, yeah. And having said that, just as that example, I mean, probably one day I'm going to have to design a poster or something. So that probably will come in handy. But that's sort of not the motivation at this point. No, I think that's really, really cool. So we've mentioned you can give your local scientist a call (laughs) for people who are... um, like they're mature aged, maybe they've got a career somewhere else. Is there any kind of way that they can, I don't know, I guess, help with your shark research? Yes. I um, went through a stage after those months at sea where I had, I had genetic samples and isotopes, which is how we look at their diet samples and lots and lots of videos and they all need to be analysed and we're often time poor and could get volunteers in to help look at underwater videos and just, you know, maybe not even identify a fish, just say which frames of this hour video has a fish on it or has a shark on it. And you can also do a lot of citizen science projects like Reef Check. They do trips where you can go to certain islands or certain areas and do monitoring. There's online databases like iNaturalist where you take photos of whatever it is, birds or stingrays, and then it goes on the internet, you say when you saw it, where you saw it, a photo ideally, and then it goes up there, like the Atlas of Living Australia, and then 
as a scientist, I sometimes look at that and say, oh, is this the range? Is this the area? When is this being seen there? So you can contribute in those ways without actually having to take up extra time. If you're on holidays or you're on a boat and you see a snapper, take a photo of it and then log it. And all of this comes together. And when we get it over 10 years, it definitely does help add science as well as the actual volunteer programs where you do go out and spend time to biodiversity surveys and beach cleanups and things like that. And we'll collect a bunch of those links and include them in the show notes for this episode because they're all really, really good things. (laughs) Yeah. And also depending on where you are in the world, there's lots of local organisations that you know, work on whether it's manta rays or whale sharks and just sending in photos that you've seen can actually help research as well. Never never underestimate the power of a good photo. (laughs) Absolutely not, no. What is something you wish the general public understood about, let's just start with being a PhD student. (laughs) Being a PhD student. I would love to know whether stereotypical PhD student that sleeps all day... (laughs) gets their PhD in three years and doesn't do a lot comes wrong because I would really like to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's fueled purely by dedication. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. And yeah, if you're by all means interested in it, start with a smaller honours project and then a master's and then work your way up. But again, it's not for everyone. You don't have to have a PhD to be a scientist. I think that's very important as well to get across. You know, you you can be a scientist by a lot of other avenues. It doesn't have to be the academic route. It doesn't have to be a PhD. Yeah, I think that's a really important one for people to keep in mind. Yeah, a a lot of different avenues to take. And what about something you wish the general public understood about sharks? <laughs> They're very diverse. They can teach us a lot. And if you have the opportunity, go to your local aquarium and just watch them and Get a whole new perspective of them. Look past the teeth. Look into their eyes and watch them swim and it can be quite mesmerising sometimes. In a strange way, like when they're just wandering around, they seem very peaceful creatures. Absolutely. In our local aquarium where I've taken some um, school trips when I take some school kids out, they have a room downstairs. It's called Aqua in WA. And it's basically a sunken lounge almost where they've got these comfortable chairs and basically half the wall is the aquarium. And you can just look in there and they've got some classical music playing and it is so relaxing. Even the school kids that are going, you know, a thousand kilometres an hour to sit there and even they sort of like really mellow out. And it's just very relaxing. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, nice way to while away some time. Don't judge a shark just by its teeth. No, pretty much. That could be a nice little slogan. (laughs) Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge sharks by its teeth. Look beyond the teeth. (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to share? I think we've pretty much covered it. But yeah, sharks are very diverse. Sharks are very diverse and shark scientists are very diverse. There's a lot of different avenues to take and to do marine science. It doesn't have to be biology. It can be a lot of different avenues. And follow your skills and follow your passion. Because I think if you're passionate about something, the skills will probably follow. And if you have the skills, it makes everything a bit easier. And finding that sweet spot where you've got both of them. (laughs) Ideally. (laughs) That's where we all want to (laughs) be. And where you get paid. Uh, Yes, I've actually seen um, a Venn diagram or something similar that's got, you've got your passion on one side, 
you've got payment on the other side and then underneath you've got skills. And I think if one of them is missing, it's a hobby. If the payment's missing. <laughs> yes. And if, you know, the other two are missing, then it's not your passion. So ideally you're one or three. We'll all keep looking for that one. Yeah. Might not come easy, but we'll all get there. Struggle makes it real. That's so true. And we wouldn't appreciate it if it came too easy. <laughs> That's true. Have you got a virtual high five for anyone that you would like to share with us? The first one that springs to mind is Lydia Couturier. She was a PhD when I was doing my honours. She did her PhD on manta rays all up the east coast of Queensland. And I just remember she's back in France now and working over there. And I just remembered she was, she was my role model. She was what I wanted to be. She was calm. She got the work done. She thoroughly enjoyed it. She was good at it. And as well as doing that, she took time for me as someone that was asking questions all the time, took me on dive trips with her. And I wanted to give her a virtual high five. Might send this podcast to her. (laughs) She sounds fantastic. And she sounds very well deserving of high fives from all of us. Yeah, she's the role model that we all need. And we all need a good role model. We do, we do. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Charlotte. It's been very educational and I'm hoping everyone everyone <laughs> is feeling a bit more positive about sharks now. <laughs> Yay. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries. Any, anytime. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic.